Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing in our exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And we'll be looking at um, verses 5 to 8 of chapter 2. But I'm going to, for sake of context, start reading at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Heavenly Father, help us as we look to these words, your word. Holy Spirit, please guide us, illuminate our minds, open up our eyes and our ears to see and to hear, our hearts to receive your word. Please speak through me as I preach your word to your people. Impact them for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we've been going through this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, this comes on kind of a, the, the tail end of or after um, his, his mantra, his life mantra, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And, and then he tells the uh, Philippians to live their mo- lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he instructs them uh, how they are to do that and gets into this um, section where he teaches them and encourages them and exhorts them to unity to unity in the body, unity in the church, uh, uh, to be one, as God is one. And as we looked uh, last week, and, and even the week before, um, we saw uh, just the importance, the, the critical importance of unity in the church. And not just unity in the church, but unity in, in any organization. It, it's so uh, vital to the success of a family, of a company, of a sports team, and especially of a church. Um, any group of people that is not unified, not one, will um, inevitably fail in their purpose. And uh, Paul calls the Philippians to unity, not just so that they will succeed, but um, because God is one. And that's where the church is, is moving towards that. In the end, the, the church will be one. And more than just uh, unity itself, he calls the Philippians to, uh, to other principles and practices um, that he commends that would support unity or, or contribute to their unity. Uh, principles such as humility, being humble, um, self-denial, as we, we looked at um, that last week, and just being one of the primary uh, attitudes of the Christian life is is self-denial. As Jesus said, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's where the Christian life begins, is self-denial. We also see in in these other principles that contribute to unity is is service. Service in the body, serving one another. Uh, The principle of love. Um, Also, purpose and focus, that that there is a purpose for why we are one body, why we are together. 
And in this, this section, Paul um, continues to call them to unity, but he uses an illustration or an example of, of Christ as the, the exemplar of, of uh, humility and of unity, of service, of love. In this, this section right here, <clears throat> verses 5 to 11, this passage, um, if, if some of you have either studied Philippians uh, a lot or you have a study Bible or you've heard sermons about this, this is, in a sense, um, what many believe to be uh, a hymn, either uh, an ancient Christian hymn that, that Paul included or a hymn that Paul wrote himself. Um, nonetheless, it, it has qualities of a hymn from verse 5 to, to 11. One, one commentator, he writes that this passage is often referred to as the hymn of Christ or as others in Latin, the Carmen Christi. Um, and he goes on, he says, Paul depicts Christ's example of service in a stirring poem that traces his pre-existence, his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. This commentator says that Paul wrote this magnificent theology to encourage the Philippians to consider other people's interests first. Jesus is a paradigm of genuine spiritual progress. As others have said, Christianity is about Christ. It's all about Christ. He's our focus. He's our example. He's um, the image to which we are being conformed. He's our object of worship. He's who we are to fix our eyes on, fix our hope in. He, he's to be everything in our lives as, as Christians. And Paul points us to, to Christ here in this passage. He's, he's pointing the Philippians to Christ as the example of um, how they are to live. He calls them to think like Christ. And continuing in this, this theme of unity... In this passage, in these uh, four verses, Paul presents us with uh, four aspects of the mindset for unity. Four aspects of the mindset for unity as he begins in verse 5 to telling the Philippians and telling us to think in a certain way. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. That's a, the main command, the main imperative, the main verb in this whole section is to think this way. To think this way. He's calling on the Philippians to, um, to order their minds, to have the mindset of unity, have the mindset of humility, have a mindset like Christ. And so we see four aspects of the mindset for unity here in this passage. First, the mandate. The mandate, we'll, we'll see the mandate, the model, the motives, and the means of the mindset for unity. And first, the mandate. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to think like Jesus Christ. We are to think like Jesus Christ. And, and uh, there's only one way in which we can do that, that we are to uh, have our minds saturated in Scripture. There's so many um, conceptions or, or presuppositions or um, just ideas and opinions about who Jesus was. Jesus, you know, even many unbelievers, um, many people who are students of history, um, especially in the Western world, um, many people have heard of Jesus. They have conceptions about Jesus. And... and Many of those ideas, those conceptions, those opinions um, do not necessarily come from the Word of God. Or maybe they, they come from a second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand knowledge of the Word of God, a watered-down gospel, a pop culture, this idea of who Jesus is. And you have all these different uh, types of Jesus. And, and then you have the, the cults. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, and all the, the lesser cults and the, um, even Roman Catholicism. 
uh, Muslims have an idea of Jesus and, and what he was like. And, and most of these ideas, most of these pictures of Jesus, uh, they're in a sense honorable, they're, they're, they're respectful, but many of them are false because they're not, they're not accurate, they're not faithful to the word of God. Paul calls us, and he calls the Philippians, he he calls all believers of every age who would read this passage to think like Christ. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And the only way we are to do that is to saturate ourselves in Scripture. We are called to think like Jesus Christ, to uh, do what he did, in a sense, We can't do exactly what he did because we are sinners. We are human beings, completely human, whereas he was 100% God and 100% man. He was both, he was the God man. But nonetheless, he is our example. We we think like Jesus Christ in the sense that um, his whole life, his whole mindset, his whole mission was to do the will of the Father and not his own. He came to... Uh, redeem his people. He came to serve his people, to die for his people. Jesus, uh, his mindset was always on the will of the Father and his people and what was in their best interest. As Paul tells us to uh, have this mindset of humility, of service to one another, uh, of unity, we are to think of others as more important than ourselves, as he, he had just uh, called us to in verse 3, to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And, and this was Jesus' mindset. This was, he, he always thought of others. <clears throat> he came to serve and not to be served. And he thought what was, he thought about them in the sense of what was in their best interest, not, not what they would like but what was best for them, salvation, to be confronted in their sin, to be called to holiness, to be uh, even comforted at times. So we have this mandate to think, to have the same thinking in ourselves as was also in Christ Jesus, and we are to think like Christ, but that that also uh, implies that we know Christ. Yeah, that we just not, we not only know about Jesus through his word, but we actually know him. We are to know Jesus Christ savingly. We are to know him theologically, and we are to know him experientially. You know, we, you can study all about Jesus um, in the Bible and even uh, theology books and, and even um, historical records about Jesus. You can know the facts about Jesus. But you really don't know Jesus unless you have come to Jesus for salvation. Unless you have repented from your sins. Unless you have been born again. We can't have the same way of thinking in ourselves as was in Christ if we do not know Christ. And if we do not know him savingly. But second, we need to know him theologically. In uh, you know, in, in many churches and, and, and many believers, they, they don't want to do the heavy lifting of study. Uh, they might even say, I'm not into all that theology stuff. Um, it, it causes division, and it, I, I don't want to get into debates. Um, I, I'm not concerned about them. I, I, just, I just want to love Jesus and, and, and uh, you know, be happy and serve in my church and, and just... You know, this, uh, this is the lowest common denominator of Christianity, or is what some have called the mere Christianity. But no, we're, we're called to know Christ. We're called to have the mind of Christ, and that requires study. That requires learning. That requires renewing our minds. It requires us to, to learn about theology about Christology, about pneumatology, about uh, theology proper, about bibliology, all these big words to 
look at other resources to help us understand the Word of God. But it all starts with knowing Christ savingly. And then we learn, we spend the rest of our lives learning more and more about our Savior, about the God-men. But it's not just savingly and theologically. We need to know Jesus Christ experientially. And there is a sense where saying that word and, and um, calling you, calling others to know Jesus Christ experientially, there, there is a, a sense where that's dangerous because there's, there's many people, as I just said, who um, they, they say they, they don't want too much theology and they just want to experience and it sounds very subjective, and there is a sense where it is subjective. But we are called to live like he lived as much as possible in our humanness. We are called to uh, do certain things he did, to be conformed to his image. And in that brings experiences. Experiences of humility, of unity, of love, of service, of giving. You know, if we are to have the mind of Christ, we are to live like Christ, we are to do the things that he did, and we will, in a sense, know him um, experientially to a certain degree. Um, you know, there's, there's certain things in the Bible as we go about our Christian lives, there are spiritual disciplines. We read about these spiritual disciplines. We, you know, most of us, when we got saved or we came to faith or just growing up in church, we went through a discipleship programs. Discipleship programs which taught us um, what, what it means to be a Christian, what to do, these, these spiritual disciplines of studying our Bibles, of praying, of um, serving in the church, of... Um, giving, of uh, witnessing, evangelizing, um, teaching, different things that constitute the, the, the Christian life. And as we read about these things in Scripture, and as we do them, there is in a sense where we um, come to know Christ and we know Him a bit more experientially. As we're filled with the Spirit, the same concept, being filled with the Spirit. We're called to be being filled with the Spirit. You know, there's, there's some of these um, disciplines throughout Scripture. And, and I remember, as a young believer, um, coming across, uh, just it, it come up time and time again throughout Scripture as I'd read it. This uh, concept, um, this this discipline of fasting. And I asked my, my um, pastor about it, and, and uh, he would tell me, you know, you're not required to do that. <clears throat> you know, it, it's, you don't have to fast. It, it doesn't make you a super Christian, so to speak. Um, and there is a sense that it, just using this discipline or, uh, as, as an example, there is a sense that you can get legalistic about it, um, same with Bible reading or, or your prayer life or journaling or witnessing or, or any other discipline in the Christian life, you can become legalistic with it. But I fasted, and I don't do it a lot. Um, I fasted, you know, first off, just for the simple fact that I would like to know what the Bible <laughs> means when it talks about fasting. It's one of those things. It's like, um, you know, you go through your Christian life. You want it to, you should want to do um, or be faithful. And it was one of those things where, you know, I would at least like to experientially understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about fasting. You know, and I would, if for no other reason. There, there's several reasons why you would fast and several wrong reasons but just at a bare minimum, I think everyone should fast at least once, just at a bare minimum, so they kind of experientially understand what the Bible's talking about when it says something about fasting. You know, and most of my fasts, you know, I look at the Bible, I look at um, strong believers in church history, 
and comparing my fasts to theirs, and my fasts are a joke. <laughs> but nonetheless, I have some sort of point of reference when I read about Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That's, I mean, you know, people in our culture, they, they might look down at this uh, feminized version of Jesus. Think that, you know, Jesus is just, um, you know, meek and mild, a, a, a weak person. You know, if, if anybody has ever fasted for a certain amount of time, try fasting for 40 days. Try fasting for a week. That's strength. That's self-discipline. And there's a certain sense that as we are called to think like Christ, we're called to be like Christ, we're called to know Christ, there's certain things that we should look at his life, we should read scripture, we should read the things uh, that he proclaimed and the things that he did, and we should try to emulate that as much as possible so that we can, in a sense, have this way of thinking in ourselves. We are to think like Jesus Christ. We are to know Jesus Christ. And we are to be conformed to Jesus Christ, not to the world. We are to be transformed by renewing our minds through Scripture to understand who is this, this person? Who is this God-man? Who is our Savior? Who is it that we are called to emulate? As, as Paul, you know, he, he gives this comprehensive uh, treatise on the whole gospel on salvation on the history of redemption in his letter to the romans and he goes through uh, 11 chapters explaining the sinfulness of mankind the fall of man into sin uh, even uh, god's history of redemption and calling abraham and and the 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 nation of Israel and that uh, the, they were given the, the oracles of God and, and the word of God and through them came the prophets and the priests and, and through them Jesus Christ and, and how we are saved and how we are sanctified and then he gets to chapter 12 and explains how we are to then live and apply all these things and he says, therefore I exhort you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. We are to constantly be renewing our minds, uh, transforming our minds through uh, Scripture, through the reading of Scripture, through the application of Scripture. Not to be uh, conformed to this world as we were. As a, the church is called um, in Greek the ekklesia, those who are called out, the gathering which is called out, called out of the world and gathered into one body so that we would be sanctified, set apart, different, uh, made holy. And part of that process is a renewing of our minds so that we think differently. Because the main way we worship is through our thoughts, through our thinking, through our understanding. We are to renew our minds through Scripture. We are to have the same way of thinking which was also in Christ Jesus. We do that by uh, limiting uh, those corrupting influences that come into our minds, that, that, that come into our lives, and we are to put more of those good uh, influence, those edifying influences, the Word of God. Uh, many of you, um, you've heard this term in, in, uh, in the concept of computers and software, of garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, that, that what you put into the computer, that, that's, that's how the computer functions, and our, our minds are similar. And there's many things we can read, we can watch, we can listen to, many places we can go. We have Christian liberty. It, it is up to us to uh, decide. But to say that those things don't influence us, don't shape our thinking, 
would be wrong. It would be uh, being foolish. You know, when, when, you, when you think of, of things, uh, say, say some sort of concept or activity or an experience or an event or a place to go, um, if you're anything like me, images pop into your minds. As you go throughout your day and throughout your life, there's images that come into your mind and concepts that come into your mind. And those images, those concepts, those ideas come from the things that you have exposed yourself to in the past. Uh, TV, movies, books, education, songs. All these influences, they shape your thinking. We are called to renew our minds, and we are called to do that through Scripture. And the more Scripture we put into our minds, and the less um, things that are opposed to Scripture, the more we will be transformed, the more we will be renewed, the more we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the more we will be able to have this way of thinking in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're to be conformed to Jesus Christ by renewing our minds and, and by by limiting the evil things that come into our minds, the bad influences, by uh, stopping, stop loving the things which God hates. As uh, John writes his epistle, his first epistle to um, the believers in his day and age to um, encourage them, to uh, give them confidence and assurance in their faith, he tells them in, in 1 John chapter 2, um, do not love the world nor things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with, with its lusts. We are to be made holy. We are to sanctify ourselves. We are to have this same way of thinking in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who said, my kingdom is not of this world, and my people are not of this world, and we are to not be of this world. We are in the world, but we are not to be of it. We are to be transformed. We are to follow this mandate, which Paul gives us in the context of unity of Christ's likeness, of humility, to think like Jesus Christ. So he tells the Philippians this, and he gives, he presents Christ as the uh, illustration, as the exemplar of what we are to focus on, uh, what we are to be like. And so we see not only the mandate, but he goes then into the model to further explain uh, what Jesus did, that we are in a sense to emulate that, that this model of humility, this model, if, if we are to follow, that we will have unity. Verses 6 and 7, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. And here we have this concept, and many, um, you know, you don't have to read far. If you have a study Bible, you'll probably see this. Um, you may have heard this in sermons. You may have read this in different books. Uh, this, this term uh, or this verb, emptied himself, this concept um, is a theological concept or a principle called the kenosis of a self-emptying. And it, it presents somewhat of a conundrum for certain people um, that if Jesus, being God, emptied himself, then is he less God? Did he leave something behind? What does it mean that he emptied himself? What, is it, what does it mean that he came down? And what, what exactly happened there? And it's not as if um, he became less God. 
because he's fully God. And there's many scriptures that show us that, that he is indeed God. He always was God. He always is God. He never ceased to be God. He was never partially God. But what it does mean is that it's, as some have put it, it's subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. He, he added humanity to his deity. He took on human flesh. And, and in doing that, in becoming the perfect man, in order to live a perfect life, in order to uh, be the perfect sacrifice, to obey the law perfectly, as even Paul uh, would say here, that he, uh, in a sense, uh, became obedient. He, in a sense, uh, as the writer to Hebrews would say, he learned obedience. In doing that, he limited uh, himself. He limited certain aspects of his deity. He did not cease being God, but there is a sense in which he uh, stopped uh, his functions as God or, or laid them aside for a certain time to be fully man. And here we have this model of humility that, that no one was ever so high who descended so low. That God himself not only became a man, but was born in such a way, in such a time and place, where there, he was surrounded with scandal. Uh, there was, in a sense, born into poverty, born into a lowly state, born in a time and place where as not only uh, a God himself, but the king of Israel would um, not be expected to be seen. No one was ever so high who descended so low. He is a perfect model of humility. He is a model which we are to follow. That, that we are not to, uh, in a sense, um, demand our rights. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, he writes this, he says, Paul presents Jesus as the supreme example of humility. He urges humility on the Philippians as the only way to secure unity. And this is, this is the, I guess, the, the gist, the whole point of this passage, that, that Paul is calling the Philippians to unity. He's calling them to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, to uh, be of one mind, one spirit, standing firm in, in, uh, for the faith of the gospel. They're to be united in spirit, to be thinking on one purpose, and, and the way they are to do that is by being humble, by, being, uh, by uh, having the same humility as Christ did. Because one of, the, the, um, one of the main things that destroys unity is discord resulting from selfishness. Wanting our own way or, or wanting to share our own opinions or thinking things have to go the way we think they ought to go. Um, thinking people ought to treat us the way we think they ought to treat us. It, it's selfishness destroys unity and... and um, Conversely, humility builds unity. It, it contributes to unity. So Paul calls us to, have, uh, to follow this model of Jesus Christ, this model of humility, and, and the same model of service. As he came to serve and not to be served. This is something, it's interesting, and when we, we think about that, we, we hear, hear that verse, and that's, that's one of those verses that um, you really don't have to struggle to memorize. You hear it, you remember it, that Jesus Christ came to serve and not to be served, and, and we ought to think about that, that picture of him washing the disciples' feet. God himself washing the disciples' feet. But uh, we're reminded of this, uh, even more so, of this service of Christ in Mark chapter 10. This scene where James and John, and, and it's, 
It's just amazing the, the hubris, the, the pride, <laughs> just the presumption upon James and John as they come to Jesus. And, and all throughout you know, Jesus' earthly ministry, the, the disciples, they see his miracles, they, they hear his words, they, they, in a sense, believe everything, all his claims that he is the Messiah. They have this picture of Messiah uh, uh, crushing Israel's enemies and, and setting up his, his earthly kingdom and ruling and reigning, and, and they believe that. They see his miracles, and so they come to him in, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 41. They ask him that they would sit on his right and his left. And the others, it says, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> what, and some of them may have felt like, well, they beat us to the punch. <laughs> you know, who knows what was in their hearts and minds. But Jesus takes this opportunity, and it's amazing. Just, you know, even his patience with James and John. He takes this this opportunity to teach them something about humility. He, and it goes on, it says, uh, Mark writes, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, he tells them, you know, in a sense, it's as he would write in another place or, or, or is recorded in another place, it's, it's more blessed to give than receive. That it's better to serve. It's better to be last than first. You, um, and this is, in a sense, much of the Christian life is contrary to the way the world works. As Jesus would say, that the Gentiles lord it over themselves. And great men exercise authority over them. They're, they rule with a heavy hand or they expect to be uh, submitted to, to be looked up to. They demand respect and honor. This is not how you are to uh, live and serve and lead. You are to be the slave of all. You are to be like me. You are to serve and you are to serve those who don't deserve to be served. You're to serve those who can't repay you. You're to uh, give of yourselves. Jesus is this perfect model of humility, of service, and he is ultimately this, the, the model for mankind, for all of us. He's, uh, he, he, he came to, in a sense, undo what the first man did, or to do what he didn't do, to accomplish what he did not, to fix what he broke. Jesus is a second Adam. He's a perfect man. He's our example as believers. He's an example for all mankind. He's an example that we are to follow in that he humbled himself and he he emptied himself. He set aside his prerogatives and he thought of others. He thought of what was in their best interest. He sought only to do the will of God, not his own will. He emptied himself. One uh, commentator, he writes about this. This term, emptying. This, this concept of the kenosis. He says... This doctrine of Christ emptying in his incarnation, not, not in emptying himself of deity, nor an exchange of deity for humanity. Jesus did, however, set aside his privileges in several areas. He set aside his, in a sense, his heavenly glory. He came down to earth. Even as we see um, this glory as he prays about in John chapter 17, that, that uh, he prays to the Father that he would have the same glory as he did when he was face to face with him. This heavenly glory he laid aside, so to speak. He emptied himself up 
of. In his commentary, he writes, he says that while on earth he gave up the glory of a face-to-face relationship with God and the continuous outward display and personal enjoyment of that glory. Second, he set aside his independent authority. During his incarnation, Christ completely submitted himself to the will of his Father. Which is interesting because there, within the Godhead, there are no, no two or three wills. It's all one will because they're all one. But nonetheless, uh, as he became a man, he showed, uh, became that example of submitting to the Father's will. That's all he cared about was the Father's will. He, in a sense, laid aside his independent authority. Third, he laid aside his divine prerogatives. He set aside the voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the Spirit's direction. There's there's many times he could have done miracles, and he could have um, done miracles in a way to make his life easier, which he did not. He only did miracles um, to uh, give credibility to his message, to show his glory. It was it was at the perfect time and place and, and the, in the perfect way. He laid aside his divine prerogatives. Fourth, he laid aside his eternal riches. He who was rich became poor. As he would say to his disciples when he calls them to follow him, and he says, you know, and, and they're, they're giving all these excuses. And he says, you know, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The, the one who created the whole universe, who, as Colossians 1 says, upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he has no home. He goes about, in a sense, poor. He laid it all aside. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. As we read here, this is the model. We have the mandate here that Paul gives us to have the same way of thinking in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then we are to follow the model of Jesus in his humility and his service. But third, the third aspect of this mindset of unity is the motives of Christ. We not only see his, his model of humility and service, but we see the motives that contributes to this mindset of unity and humility that he came to sacrifice, to give of himself for others. He came to serve and he came to substitute himself, to sacrifice. Turn with me to, chap- to Hebrews chapter 2. And as we've been, you know, reading through this letter to the Hebrews, um, and we see, you know, there's many portions of Scripture that um, just show the great depth of, um, of Jesus Christ and, and who he was and is and what he did. But I, I think Hebrews uh, lays it out in, in such a way that it just magnifies the glory of Jesus Christ and we see that here in Hebrews chapter 2 as the writer to the Hebrews is, is trying to uh, bolster their faith and, and compel them not to turn away from Christ and not to turn back to Judaism. And he writes in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 and verse 10, he says this concerning uh, Jesus. He says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. 
For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, was, he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. You know, one of, one of the main misconceptions concerning Jesus Christ is, is this distinction of him being 100% God and 100% man. How can he be both 100% God and 100% man, the God-man? And, and there's many cults, many heresies that have sprung up around the nature of Jesus Christ, the true nature. You know, was there, as, as some would say, well, it was just the spirit that came on a certain man and then the spirit left him and then that man died. Or, you know, that man just appeared to be God. No, he was 100% God and 100% man. And he had to become man. He had to, uh, in a sense, take on human flesh so that he could redeem sinful man. He had to be made like his brothers. He had to have flesh and blood so that that flesh, that body could be broken, could be sacrificed, so that that blood could be spilt for us, could be shed for us. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. He had to uh, come to sacrifice himself to be the perfect high priest, to be the sympathetic high priest, to, uh, to not only give his body and spill his blood, but to uh, be tempted in every way in which we are so that he is able to sympathize with us. That is, he, he is able to uh, effectively and compassionately intercede for us and advocate for us. He, he came to sacrifice himself. He willingly, that was his motive. He came to serve as well. To serve sinners, to serve his own creation, to serve people who hated him. To substitute himself. There, there's this concept, uh, it's um, this doctrinal term called um, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning, uh, in, in a sense, uh, you, you get that term uh, penal colony or, or, or penalty uh, of that um, he took on a penalty, a punishment. And he was the substitute. And he atoned for our sins. He came to substitute himself for sinners. He voluntarily took our place. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A, a perfect substitution, a, a great exchange. This was behind, this was the motive behind his humbling, behind um, his emptying of himself, uh, everything that he did was to redeem his people. This is why he says to his uh, disciples in John chapter 15, this, this verse, which um, it's interesting that, that many, um, many uh, soldiers, many military members, they, they know this and they quote this, and you see this a lot um, amongst veterans. John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This is uh, the model of love. The model of love. And, and all this contributes to uh, unity in the body. As we have this mindset, the same way of thinking that was in Jesus, of um, thinking like him, knowing him, being conformed to his image, following this model of humility, of service, uh, this, this model of the perfect man and, and we see his his motives to sacrifice himself for others to serve those who aren't worthy to be served to substitute himself for sinners we follow these motives in the this model of jesus we we will have perfect unity 
So Paul paints this picture of uh, this great humbling of Jesus. And then he gets into verse 8 of the means in which he humbled himself. The, the, the means of his, his humbling, of this mindset for unity to, in a sense, create unity. That there was this willingness within him to become what he was not. Paul writes, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's interesting. It's being found in appearance as a man. God himself was found as a man. And, and not like any special man, not, not that he could be pointed out in a crowd, but just um, any just common man. And it's interesting that, you know, throughout the Bible, you know, approaching God for a man, a sinful man to approach God was uh, something, a serious thing that even all throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system, the, um, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the, the whole law established how man can commune with God and worship God. Is, is, you know, God tells Moses, no man shall see my face and live. It's interesting that he, Jesus, whose glory no man can see, appeared as a man. Even as Isaiah 53 says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. He who created the whole universe and upholds the whole universe came, was found in the appearance of a man, and, and, and not a special man, not a man that could be pointed out, a man that was despised and forsaken by other men, a man of sorrows. This is how far he humbled himself. This is a, the means by which he humbled himself, and he showed he was willing to do this. He was willing to do this to, uh, to redeem sinners. He became obedient. He learned obedience. He humbled himself. He not only humbled himself, but he was humiliated. He was humiliated by his own creation. As, as Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And, and not just death, but even death on a cross. He, he ends that statement, even death on a cross. He humiliated in the world's eyes. This, this form of execution, this form of torture was... was created and perfected by the Romans to send a message. To send a message to all the enemies of the state. To send a message to uh, other nations. To send a message to other criminals that, that you obey Rome. You don't mess with Rome. It, it wasn't just the torture and, and the mocking, but uh, crucifixion was designed in such a way that you would be, uh, in a sense, placarded, put up as a billboard for others to see, crucified on a main thoroughfare. And even the flogging was done in such a way um, that people would fear. And, and not just the flogging, but um, uh, parading the criminal, the person, through the streets. That there would be shame heaped upon them. And, and then the charge nailed to the cross so that everybody would see this is what happens. This was a deterrent. This was a shaming. This was a humiliation like no other, which Jesus Christ willingly 
took on to, to willingly uh, redeem his people. He was, who was so high descended so low and was humiliated. It's interesting. We, we, we get a picture of what was happening here um, in Hebrews chapter 12. As the writer tells us to, in a sense, fix our eyes on Jesus, to follow him, to live like him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he says this, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And he has this statement, despising the shame. There was shame associated with the cross. Uh, as much shame as the world could heap on a person, it was here at the cross. And Jesus despised it. Despised it. He despised it because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him in heaven. The joy of redeeming a people for himself and for the Father. Of building his kingdom. Of building his church. Of sacrificing himself for sinners. He despised the shame that the world was trying to heap upon him. And then... The writer to the Hebrews says, and then he sat down. His work was finished, completed. He came, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul elaborates on Jesus here, and he will elaborate on him further in the next uh, few uh, verses as he calls the Philippians to unity. Because he, he, he's explaining, he's elaborating, he's, he's trying to paint this picture of this great humility of Jesus that, that we are to emulate, that we are to follow. In, in order for us to um, have this same way of thinking in ourselves, to think deeply about Jesus Christ, about who he was and, and, and what he did, and how far he humbled himself, that we are to do the same in a sense. We are to humble ourselves before others. We are to serve others. We are to obey God. We are to um, not uh, demand our rights, not demand that other people serve us. And if we do this, we will have unity within the church. He calls us to humble ourselves. Gives this picture of Jesus. I remember, um, I don't watch much TV. Um, usually, I, I don't even own a TV, and so most of the time when I see something on the television, <coughs> um, it's somewhere else. But nonetheless, um, there was a while ago I, I was watching this show, and, and you probably have seen it before. Um, a show called Dirty Jobs. You see the dirty jobs where the, the host goes around and he finds um, all these dirty jobs. And some of the dirtiest jobs and, and some of them are, are, are really gross. And uh, the people that, and it's amazing how um, it, as he goes around and he, he finds these dirty jobs and he sh in a sense has this reality TV show, um, almost everybody doing the job, and it may be because they're on TV, but they seem happy. They <laughs> seem happy to do this gross job. And I remember one episode, he goes and he sees uh, this guy who, he's a sewer cleaner. And he cleans sewers. And he goes down and, and, and it's, it's not, and it, it seemed as if it was more in a, a more um, older city. He went down this one sewer, because you see the brickwork. And it's, it's an old brick uh, sewer, and so he goes down. And he's filming him, and he's in a hazmat suit, and he has this. Uh, it looks like a power washer, and he goes down. And he descends down in this sewer, and, and you look at the the walls of the sewer, and at first you see, well, it looks kind of dirty and grunt, but then it's moving, and you start seeing, and then they put the light on it, and it's all cockroaches. The whole thing is just cockroaches. And then where there's not cockroaches, where there's ledges, and you see the water and the sewage running, and where there's ledges, there's rats. 
and they're going, and so we have all these cockroaches and ratches, and then he's like, hey, yeah, and this is just my job, and it's happy, and he takes that power washer, and he just starts slowly washing away, and off comes the cockroaches and the rats, and, and the only thing in my mind, all I could think of is, you got the wrong tool. You don't, you don't need a, a pressure washer. You need a flamethrower. You just need to burn it all. And then I got this sense that that's what Christ did for us. He descended into the sewer of humanity. He descended into the sewer that is a sin-cursed world to redeem sinners, to redeem ugly wretched creatures like us and, and some of you, you you may kind of get the analogy and may be thinking well joe are you calling me a cockroach or a rat no because cockroaches and rats don't sin against their creator they don't transgress their lo his law they don't lust and covet they don't lie and cheat and steal they don't murder they do what they're created to do but Jesus Christ, God himself, in a sense, descended to save sinners, to save his enemies, to redeem some. And, and even, you know, stretching the analogy a little bit further, to take uh, some of those cockroaches and rats home as pets, to love upon them, to, uh, to feed them, to take care of them to love them, to make them as his own, to redeem them completely. He descended into sewer of humanity to redeem sinners such as us. And if he did that, how can we demand our rights? How can we be self-centered? How can we be selfish? How can we be bitter? How can we be angry at one another? How can we be unforgiving? How can we sow seeds of discord? How can we demand that, that people uh, show us honor and respect when we don't deserve any of that? We deserve the flamethrower. We deserve to be burned. And there is a day coming when he will do exactly that. And he will burn it all. And until that time... We are to call other sinners like us to repent and believe upon him because they deserve hell. They deserve punishment. They deserve to be squashed. They deserve to be crushed because they've sinned against their creator. As we think about the church and as Paul calls the Philippians and calls us as well to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to constantly remind ourselves of this gospel and constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ did for us. That he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most cruel form of torture. And not only that, but he bore the wrath of the Father to redeem us. And if he, being God, did that for us, how can we not love others as he has loved us? Heavenly Father, please forgive us. Please forgive us for demanding our own way, for thinking of ourselves as more highly than we ought to, for thinking that Others should respect us and should honor us and should serve us. Please forgive us for not forgiving others, for not loving others, for not caring about other sinners who are on their way to hell. We only just want to go about our own day and do our own thing and we constantly think about our schedule and what we would like to do and where we would like to go and what we would like to experience and just 
ultimately live our best life now. Lord, remind us of who we were, of who we are as sinners, and of what you've done to redeem sinners. And for those here who might not know you, who have yet to repent and believe, Lord, pray that you would convict their hearts to show them that they have indeed sinned against you. And there is a day coming when you will judge all sinners. You will judge the whole world in righteousness, every act, every deed. There's only one way to escape that judgment, through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.